0: Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, March 3rd, and we're following up on our discussion of Snap. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined on Skype by Fool.com senior tech specialist, Evan New. Evan, how's it going?
1: Well, I'm okay. I'm a little jealous that I didn't get to sell $300 million worth of stock this week, but, you know, there's always
0: next week. Yeah, it seems like some of those early (laughs) Snap insiders did pretty darn well. Uh, The market has been. Pretty kind to the ephemeral messaging app in its first day and hour of trading on the market. Um, it, what is it up about twenty percent today?
1: Yeah, it's up another twenty percent today. It jumped forty four percent yesterday. So right now, it's about a thirty four billion dollar company already.
0: <laughs> Which is nuts. I mean, that is that is multiples of Twitter's market cap. Uh, it was, yeah, it's
1: it's like two and a half to three times at least. Oh, yesterday, as of yesterday's close, it was two and a half times the market cap of Twitter. So today is probably pushing three.
0: That is insane. Um, there are some crazy valuation metrics that we might briefly touch on with that, but this is all to say. And you look at this market reaction; there was a lot of demand for for this issuance, right? Um, I mean, I read on CNBC that the issuance, the IPO, was twelve times oversubscribed. Which basically means, for the overall demand uh, for the shares at issuance price when the banks were underwriting that IPO, and they were talking to clients, was 12 times what was being made available by the company. And so you see what's going on in day one and day two of it hitting the market. And you have people that probably didn't get quite the allocations that they were looking for in the uh, underwriting process, and are now trying to get more. Also, you have people just generally scooping up demand on hype. Um, There's a lot going on there with Snap. Yeah, I mean,
1: I, I definitely agree. Like, a lot of people were probably interested in this um, deal. And, you know, the, the underwriters only have so much that can go around. So, you know, the allocations probably weren't as much as people were hoping for. But that's kind of what happens when you have a deal that has so, as much excitement as this one. And, you know, to, to kind of circle back on some of the valuation metrics you mentioned earlier. So, uh, as of last night, Snap closed at like twenty four fifty, which put them at a $28 billion company trading at a price of sales at, like, 71. <laughs> and today, with this jump right now, it's, that's getting closer to 85. So, at a 30, you know, because they did about $400 million in revenue last year, and if they're at $34 billion, that's 85 times sales. <laughs> it's just insane.
0: <laughs> that is crazy. And and we had talked about, in the episode two, we did two weeks ago, looking at Snaps S1, what a rich valuation it was going to be coming in at And that was when they were speculatively somewhere between 20 and 24 billion uh, Mm -hmm. on this issuance. And to see it go up even more continues to raise (laughs) those red flags that we were talking about. And and listeners, uh, this episode is going to be more of a follow on the IPO and some news that we've seen recently about the company. Um, The deep dive that was very core business metrics oriented we did two weeks ago. So you can always go back and check that one out for a discussion of user base and kind of monetization and the approach there. But um, just a heads up so um, one of the news items that I wanted to touch on was a look at lockup period <laughs> with the IPO and this is this is something kind of of folklore I guess we don't know hundred percent what is going on here, but a couple of days before the IPO, snap had mentioned that they were expecting investors buying up to a quarter of the shares in the IPO to agree to not sell them for a year, which Seems crazy to me that large institutions would agree to that.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty unusual requirement. As if like this offering wasn't unusual enough with some of the other things that they've been doing, like the voting stuff that we talked about before. Like this is a really weird ask of institutional investors because in it, it, it really it's a direct contrast to the lockup they're doing for themselves, which they've reduced the lockup period on for some of their own employees and. At the same time, they're asking these new investors to come in and hold on for a year, and, and of course, the goal is to, to mitigate volatility, just because IPOs are, tend to be really volatile. So they want some commitments from these in- investors to say, "Hey, don't sell," to kind of try to manage that. And, I mean, the, the, in the prospectus, they, they they didn't really change their language, so they said that they ex- expected to have 50 million shares worth of these agreements, but they or may you know they. Pointed out, they do not have any firm agreements or commitments yet. So, you know, I'm I'm curious if they actually got any.
0: Yeah, it's hard to know if anyone took the bait on that. Um, You know, obviously, the benefit for SNAP here is pretty clear. The lockup period, like you said, helps reduce volatility, kind of moderates stock price, um, prevents people from just kind of getting in and out. Um, It incentivizes people to buy and hold. But if they did wind up getting, you know, some people to go into these binding commitments, that might be another reason why the stock is moving so wildly uh, in the first couple of days. You know we talked about how only about two hundred million shares uh being issued, and if fifty million of them or you know any fraction of them are also not a part of that because you know they can't be sold once they've been issued, uh, then that's obviously going to restrict the supply that's out there for people looking to scoop up shares right. And you touched on what was going on with the employees, and, and I do think that this is kind of interesting. Snap announced that they were making some changes to their lockup expiration, and they're basically going to be reducing the amount of time employees need to hold on to shares down from 180 days to 150 days. And so um, this is similar to what they are asking of the institutions, and this is a standard thing for insiders at any IPO. Um, but what you'll wind up seeing because of this is I'm guessing a decent number of shares becoming available in late July.
1: Right. So, you know, that, that's always something that anyone that's looking at trading an IPO should always be aware of is these lockups, which, which tend to put a lot of selling pressure on the stock. I mean, I wonder if Snap will do kind of a secondary offering um, in a few months just to just for, you know, employees and you know, selling shares um, where they're not actually raising money because, you know, that you know, that's not uncommon these days for companies to do these these kind of follow-on secondaries shortly after the IPO uh, just purely as a way to ma- manage volatility associated with lockup expirations because that way they can just kind of if, if you know you have a bunch of employees and investors from before that want to sell you can set up a secondary offering and do it in a more structured and more orderly way without flooding the open market with like all these sell orders that pushes the price down instead you're, it's kind of more orderly and usually, though, you know, obviously the company just raised a bunch of money from issuing the shares. And usually, if they do it, what I'm talking about is usually just they just have it just for the employees to sell shares, where the company itself is not actually issuing more shares. So I, I wonder if they'll do that because, you know, it does seem like they're concerned about volatility. And that, you know, is something that companies do these days.
0: Yeah. I also do think it's a little interesting that the. Commitment that they were looking for from some of these large large institutions was beyond the period that they were asking employees and the co-founders and early investors to hold on to the shares of the stock. So it kind of sends a mixed message. <laughs> <laughs> a, a little bit, but um, you know they're clearly looking for long-term buy-and-hold folks there. Um, one of the other news items that I saw. Wait, wait,
1: wait Real quick, oh. I want to mention something real quick. Yeah, I think it's even more ridiculous. That whole one-year period, because during their roadshow, some investors were asking, "Where do you see yourselves in five years?" Which is like a standard interview question, or you know, like it's a yeah. question that you should be able to answer. I think I had
0: to answer that when I was coming to the Fool. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and yeah, it's a very common question in general, and it's not an unreasonable question to ask, particularly for you know, an investment. And if they're asking you to hold on for a year, and apparently, you know, I was reading some reports about the roadshows and they couldn't even answer that question so a lot of investors are like where are you going to be in 5 years and they're like i don't know <laughs> which is like really like you don't have a long term vision or any answer at all like they just didn't really they kind of like dodged the question which i thought was really suspicious but
0: you know that might be the perfect transition into the next section that we're going to be talking about <laughs> um there had been some news coming out about their hardware business and last episode we talked about how snap is saying we are a camera company yet they currently make a very tiny amount of money from their spectacles camera glasses i think some 96 98% of snap's revenue currently comes in via ads um so we got two pieces of news when it comes to hardware uh, originally they only sold these spectacles at specific locations via vending machines and so they were these kind of like tech insider moments where they'd find out that there was a vending machine somewhere in san francisco and it would be flooded with people in line down the block forever it was very novelty. It was very buzz oriented. Um, they've announced that you can now buy the spectacles online at spectacles.com for just $130, which seems pretty expensive for <laughs> for basically glasses that capture uh, what your smartphone does.
1: And probably not as well either. I mean, I know that the, the spectacles use an umbrella image processor. I, I'm not sure who actually p- produces the actual image sensor or the tech specs. I don't think Snap has really released the tech specs very much, very broadly. Like I think they've been kind of playing close to chest, but yeah, I mean, it's just weird because you have a company that's trying to brand itself as a camera company. And yeah, they have only been making a camera for a couple of months. Whereas the vast majority of their history, they've relied on the, the smartphone camera. That's just already in your phone, which in a way is easier because the entire smartphone industry is, has placed a lot of value on really innovating and developing the camera systems because it's such an important thing to consumers. So you have this entire industry that's pouring money into building the best possible cameras, and then you have Snap come along saying, oh, hey, we're going to be a camera company, and it's almost committing them to, like, trying out-innovate the smartphone industry, which, of course, includes Apple, which is the richest company on Earth. And we were talking about this earlier. So Apple's camera department alone they have somewhere between 800 and 1000 engineers working just on cameras <laughs> which is why the cameras are so good right and snapchat now has a total of like 1, 18 1900 employees so apple's camera department alone is half the size of snapchat the entire company so i mean where do you think
0: who's going to win i mean like, yeah where's the that... innovation going to come from right
1: <laughs> yeah and i mean sure i mean snap has done this little form factor thing to put in the glasses but I mean, I just think that was a little, you know, there's there certainly a lot of buzz around it, but whether or not that's going to be some long-term deal that can really, it, it, it's just really hard to to make the pitch, and I, I don't understand it also because in terms of perception, investor perception specifically, you know, I think most people will consider Snapchat or Snap a software and services company. So in software and services companies get much richer valuations in terms of all of the valuation metrics because they're more profitable, they can scale better, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas consumer hardware businesses get very low valuations because everything gets commoditized, you, you get really thin margins, consumer preferences change a lot. So you're kind of always at the mercy of these these product cycles, which you know not many companies can really navigate that really well so investors don't give them really good valuations. so you have snap that historically is a software services company trading at ridiculous valuations now trying to say they're a hardware company but it's like why would you want that association if by proxy you might you know, be asking for a lower valuation <laughs> like it's just it's weird i don't understand it at all
0: yeah if you want to look at the market's opinion of consumer device companies just check out GoPro and Fitbit right i mean these these are two companies that sell what i would consider to be very successful mainstream consumer device products but they've hit saturation points with you know how much they're going to penetrate a market and have struggled to get outside of those markets and and that's one of the problems that a lot of consumer hardware companies run into um, even if you look at
1: like all these old mature Asian companies, like you know Sony, Sony trades at like less than one time sales, and you know Toshiba, you know all these 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 kind of household names in consumer electronics, they are they trade really cheap. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and you know it's it, it's bizarre to me. The next piece of news we're going to talk about is even more bizarre. Um, <laughs> according to reports from the New York Times, the company has other hardware ambitions, uh, namely drones. And at the moment, details are scarce, but several anonymous sources at the company confirmed Snap has been pursuing a drone camera project. And I guess the thought here is, drones would allow aerial snaps, it would allow people to capture video and images in a more novel way, in kind of a cool landscape way. Again, this seems kind of crazy to me for this to be the focus.
1: Yeah, I, I, it makes no sense to me, you know, just kind of uh, as ridiculous as, this, like, the spectacle thing is in terms of trying to kind of brain your company around these, the drone thing also makes no sense to me because, like, like uh, it's hard to imagine someone buying a drone, like, as, as, first of all, it's hard to imagine Snap coming out with a drone that is competitive with what's already out there from DJI and, and even GoPro. I mean, and I mean, look at GoPro trying to get into drones, and they've had a lot of troubles, and a company like GoPro that has experience making cameras still has trouble making a really compelling drone that can, you know, has all the full features that people expect nowadays.
0: I mean, they, then, they famously had to recall one of their products, right? Because they were well, having because, troubles with it.
1: Because the, the battery was loose. <laughs> <Like> <laughs> if you shook it, the battery would move by like a millimeter and then the contacts would lose power, <laughs> which is like a really simple and kind of embarrassing problem that it was like such a silly little mistake. And had to probably something to do with their manufacturing tolerances or something. I don't know, but yeah. I mean, the point being that GoPro hasn't really pulled off the drone thing very well either, and and they were probably much better positioned to make that kind of jump in the first place. And now, and of course, like this is just like a report that they are working on. Who knows if they actually do it? And I hope that they realize that it's a bad idea <laughs> and probably save everyone a bunch of you know, headaches. If they just don't do it at all, I mean, it doesn't. Really, I mean, I guess it's not surprising that they've looked into it, since they, you know, obviously want to become a camera company. But whether or not they actually do it, I think the chances are probably against it.
0: Yeah, I and would hope so. I I get that companies. It's tempting to be a tech company and have these really sexy side projects. You know, you see the stuff that Alphabet has done with Google self-driving cars, and that is so far afield from their core search property. Um, you know, even Facebook getting into virtual reality and the hardware side with Oculus. Um, but you look at those two companies, I mean, those are businesses that have a cash cow underlying all of these futuristic r and d projects. And you know their core platforms, their ad selling platforms are doing wonders for them and are allowing them to throw money off on the side and kind of see what happens with these, you know, more futuristic, kind of hard to pin down what the impact might be type projects. I think with snap right now there's a little bit of a focus concern on my end just because you know you haven't really figured out your core platform yet. you haven't monetized it really well. I mean you're, you're still rolling ads into it and kind of building that into the user experience. and you have like 3% quarter to quarter user growth. So you have so many issues with what should be your core focus. I'm not really sure why they are doubling down on their hardware initiatives. If this is something that they're really spending a lot of time on,
1: no, I mean that's a good point. I agree completely. Like they, why aren't they focusing on on really getting the the core business up and running in in a good way? Because you know they're they're just now really rolling out this these ads, and you know I, I I'm not sure how good they're you know like because of course. In advertising, your ability to, to target ads is really critical to delivering value to your advertisers who are the actual customers, right? Like, that's who pays you. And, you know, Facebook does a really good job of that targeting because they have so much of your data. Twitter, I think, has had some troubles, which is partially why they're not monetizing as well as they should be. And so I guess, you know, the question is uh, how much user data can Snap really get and how valuable will that be? Because when most of your stuff you're putting on snapchat disappears immediately like how are they what kind of data can they gather that's going to be really useful to turn around and use for for targeting i mean it's kind of the same thing on twitter you know a lot of the time you can people can view tweets publicly without ever signing in which limits twitter's ability to gather data on them which is also why it's you know kind of harder for them to to monetize their users so i mean it's it's a big question on execution going forward and how they can actually really really grow this ad business if they can, if they'll do it well, because they're very new to this.
0: Yeah, it's, it's something that I think they still really have to figure out. You, you look at the data points that Facebook and Google have on their users, and you're right, it, it's, it's totally different. The profile is so robust for what people have uh, on their Facebook users because you know, they know all my interests, they know the stuff I like, and, and they're able to incorporate that into the algorithms that they wind up using to feed stuff up to me. Um, you know, Google knows exactly what you're searching for and can serve up hyper relevant stuff. Um, With Snap, they know your friends, they know your demographic, and they know maybe some of the outlets that you're typically interested in, you know, on on the story side. But I think that they still need to do a ton to figure that out. And I'd rather see them doubling down there than going further afield with some of these hardware projects.
1: Yeah, I mean, just the whole hardware thing, and uh, the big emphasis on hardware in general is really just confounding to me. I don't understand why they're doing it, or why they're trying to make this pivot, or whatever, if you want to call it a pivot. Because, um, yeah, I mean, they should just get down to working on their the actual ad platform, focus on the software and services stuff, before they really start dabbling in this hardware stuff. Because hardware is hard.
0: Well, and the way that their hardware is set up, too, you know, the Spectacles are built in to integrate with Snapchat. They're not really... All-inclusive like a, a device that you can use across platforms and well, so-
1: well you, you can't export uh, And then the exports like a, a circular format versus the kind of square format that most people see so there there is a way that you can export it uh, Content that you take on spectacles But like but- yeah, it, it's it, yeah I mean the point being like it, it, you would think that they want to tie exclusively to the platform but then that's like why would you buy some product that only is available for this platform. And then, oh, or and then conversely, why would you, if it's not a good product, like why would you buy it if it works on all platforms, unless it's just the best product out there? You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. this really weird Cash 22 because like, it's like, imagine, would you buy a product that can only submit stuff to, to Facebook or something? Like, it's just, it doesn't make any sense.
0: No. But yeah. that would
1: be like the differentiating factor. But, Yeah, the whole strategy makes no sense to me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it it seems a little backwards. The point that I was going to make is just, um, the, the biggest salesman for the hardware stuff is going to be people being on the platform in general, right? So, the addressable market for those products is going to be whatever the user base that they have is. And right now, it's about 160 million daily active users. So, the most compelling way to make that hardware business look appetizing is to continue to grow that user base, and then maybe you have people that want something that's a little bit more dedicated. I'm still skeptical of that, but ultimately that logic ties back to build the platform out and grow the user base and worry about hardware second, right? Yeah, agree. (laughs) So, Evan, I maintain my I'm-not-touching-this-stock position at this point, um, given the company strategy that we just (laughs) talked about and the valuation. Those are two things that are big red flags for me. But I'll also say, I'm just very generally against buying a super high-growth company in its first few quarters after going public, simply because there's so much volatility in the share price. Um, if you look back at the big tech IPOs from 2016, uh, I think there are three that are really of note. Twilio, Nutanix, and LineCorp. Twilio ipo at 15 bucks. Shares popped 90% on the first day ran up to over 60 bucks a share in September and have fallen back down to the high 20s cents. Nutanix, priced at $16, shares popped 145% on the first day and they currently trade somewhere in the mid 20s. Lastly, Line Corp, priced at $32, shares popped 27% on the first day, currently trade in the mid 30s. And what you will see with all of those <laughs> is huge first day trading spikes, a lot of enthusiasm. And then, kind of a fallback down to a much more moderate valuation. Um, of those three, only Twilio is above where shares were where they ended on day one, and they're up about 10%. And so, I run through that list just to highlight there's a ton of volatility and a ton of hype that comes into these early tech companies, and it's okay to sit on the sidelines, even if you are a Snapchat bull. It might make sense to kind of hang back a little bit and let the market settle on a little bit more of an agreed-upon price. Let some of those, you know, early employees uh, actually sell their shares when the lockups expire and have a little bit more supply out there on the market, and you might wind up getting a better price for what you're buying.
1: Yeah, I mean, just to, even if you like the company, it doesn't mean you have to like the stock. Right. right?
0: Yeah. No, at it's these, absolutely true. At these current at these current levels,
1: for sure. I mean.
0: And and I'll say yeah. like I, I like the platform like I, I I use Snapchat I've used it for several years uh, it's a cool way to mess around with my friends um, I'm not sold on the business case yet and I'm certainly not sold on the stock but um, you, you can like one without liking the other or liking all three for that matter
1: right I mean it's just a an valuation
0: <laughs> and and when you say when we talk about the valuation struggles some of the business struggles that we see for the company. We're not the only ones out there. I think there are a lot of people that are bearish on Snap. And I think the average investor out there sees all that bearish sentiment and says, okay, well, I'm hearing that it's overvalued. To me, that triggers the idea of maybe I should short it or use some options to make a bearish bet against the company. And I've actually seen some murmurs on this uh, on Twitter. And I think someone might have written in on the Motley Fool podcast group about this. Um, I'm generally against advising anyone to short anything because the downside can be pretty catastrophic. But I think it's a question we see a decent amount around these types of times. Evan, you want to explain a little bit why investors can't do any shorting right now and there isn't really much they can do in the ways of options at the moment?
1: Right. So, I mean, technically, you can short um, a stock early on, like shortly after going public, but it's really hard just because you know, if you think about who actually got shares. You know, you have underwriters, you have underwriters and investors, um, institutional, retail, and you know, of, of course, when you short a stock, you're borrowing the shares to to go sell, and then you need to buy them back at a later time, ideally at a lower price to um, to return them. But there's not a lot of people in the early day, in general, of, of IPO that are a willing to lend their shares, and, and be just, you know, there's just really not a lot of supply on the on the lending side in terms of securities lending. Um, so there's really just not a lot to, to go around, and uh, and a lot of the time. Also, to to add on to that, a lot of brokers can set their own internal requirements to mitigate their own risk exposure. Um, so, for example, I used to work at Charles Schwab, and you know, Schwab's very conservative, and they you know they 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 really don't like taking a lot of risk. So most IPOs they you can't they're not even marginable for the first like 30 small days, and they you know. You really just can't short them if if Schwab doesn't let you, you know, have them in a margin account. So, but that's just Schwab. I mean, every broker will have their own requirements. But yeah, so it's just really hard to actually short shares directly. And even if you could, it's I mean, you know, like you mentioned before, it's so volatile. So it's just kind of a crapshoot either way. So it's probably not a really great idea to to go short a stock that just went public. Just like you know as soon as you can just because it's a tricky proposition to begin with in terms of options uh, options get issued you know every so often and uh, you know the first time that a stock can technically be eligible to have options created for it is about five days after the ipo Uh, so it's up to the exchanges the options exchanges to decide if they want to create these contracts, and the options clearing corporation, if they want to create these contracts based on investor demand. Uh, once the all the you know, because there's a handful of requirements for a stock to even have options on it, uh, and Snap, and the most important one being just um, the five-day thing. Uh, whereas you know they'll, they'll meet all the other requirements pretty easily, so I, I would expect that options on Snap would show up probably next week or the week after that, because obviously there's a lot of interest and demand around this offering. So I imagine the options clearing corporation will probably issue these things out pretty short, pretty soon. And if you want to bet against it, I mean, which to be totally honest, I'm thinking about doing, <laughs> uh, I mean, using options is, is you know, shorting is, is certainly very risky in sort of options. So these are both obviously very risky in general, but I think with, if you, I mean, with options, there are a million strategies you can put together with options. But I think you could put a put together a bearish strategy with options in a way that also controls your risk better, also, versus if you short it just straight out. I mean, theoretically, you have unlimited downside if the stock just keeps running like it does. But with with options, you know, depending on what strategy you pick, you can pick some that are actually a little bit more conservative in terms of your risk exposure. But, yeah, I'll be keeping an eye out, because I I think it'll come down pretty soon.
0: Yeah, I think that that options discussion might make for a great industry-focused episode in the future. Uh, I think for fools out there that are seeing what is going on with Snap, you always have to kind of remind yourself that nothing about the core business has changed uh, from the day before it went public to today, right? All of the key quarterly financials and business metrics that we like to look at are exactly the same as they were before. Um, It's just that market sentiment and hype has pushed the stock up. Um, If you continue to like it at that valuation, then it doesn't really matter. Uh, For people that are a little bit more sensitive to high-valuation stocks, obviously that might keep you out of it. Uh, Yeah,
1: I think it's uh I mean, I think the market will sober up pretty quickly.
0: (laughs) We'll see. And and I mean, this will be one of the companies that I think we talk about a ton in 2017. Um, A lot of people know it, it's consumer facing. And clearly, there's a ton of interest just based on the way the market's been treating it so far in its first day and a half or so trading. So, more to come. Uh, Anything else before I let you go, Evan?
1: No, I think we covered it.
0: All right. Well, listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions, or if you just want to reach out and say hey, you can always shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com, or you can tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, you can subscribe on iTunes, or check out The Fool's family of shows at fool.com slash podcasts. Also, we're having a happy hour-meetup if you're going to be in the Austin area for South by Southwest. just want to give you guys a heads up. If you want to drop us an email at industryfocus.fool.com, like I said before, uh, we'll get you all the details, but there'll be a decent crew of Fools out there, and we'd love to meet up with some members and people that follow the shows. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So, don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. For Evan New, I'm Dylan Lewis, thanks for listening and Fool on.